not my normal practice to preach my sermons at particular individuals. I know some of you feel like I do. Um, you can blame that on God, not on me. But today I am preaching my sermon at about 10 or 11 people in the church. And here they are. Uh, these are our elders, Rob Craig, Daniel Creswell, Mark Lederbach, Mark Lindsay, Jake Mason, Ben Merkel, George Robinson, Mark Savage, me, Travis Williams, and his long-lost cousin, Sam Williams. We have our quota of Williams and Marks on our elder team. But. So today I'm preaching at, these, at this group of men because Peter is talking to elders today. But it's not just for them. It's not, I don't want you to check out and go surf on the web or, or something on your phone. Um, because um, this is for uh, the principles you'll find have much broader application for those who lead and shepherd in the church outside of the particular role that our elders play in leading our church. So if you're a small group leader, if you uh, work with our youth, if you teach, uh, you'll find tremendous application for you here. If you are a ascribe or aspire to be a future elder in the church at some day, um, you should be taking very careful notes today um, because this is for you as well. Um, and for, for those of you who are not in leadership at our church at this time, um, I know of no better set of instructions for how to pray for our leaders than these. Um, and uh, we covet your prayers um, today. So if you'll open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 5, um, the first, we'll look at the first four verses together today, and I'd like to pray for us as we do that. So, Lord, have mercy upon us, especially upon those, those of us in leadership here at the church, that your word might strengthen us so that we can strengthen your church. So, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. So, Peter in chapter 4 has said that judgment begins with the house of God, with his own people, and he says then in verse 19, the last verse of chapter 4, right before our passage, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So he's getting the church ready to suffer faithfully for the name of Christ as suffering and even persecution increases. Now as part of that, he turns now and addresses the elders. And so um, those, those of us who serve as elders, brothers, he is addressing us because the health and beauty of the church in suffering depends upon these things in her leaders. Okay? It, is, uh, it is our calling. So he starts in verse 1 of chapter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he is speaking to elders. They were the local leaders of churches in the New Testament. This is God's evident pattern for the churches in the New Testament. We read about it in the book of Acts, where it says when they had, they had appointed elders for them in every church. In the book of Titus, Paul says, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So when he says, I exhort the elders, he's talking to the leaders of the churches. And he exhorts them. 
I mean, literally, he's calling them alongside him um, because Peter, too, is a fellow elder, he says. He, is a, he, too, is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter was an eyewitness, but as an elder, he had seen the sufferings of Christ in his own life and in the lives of those who follow in the way of Jesus. He, he too, Peter says, will be a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He too shares the elders' hope in the coming of Jesus, who's going to right all wrongs and end all sorrows. Peter says, I'm a fellow elder, I'm a fellow witness, I'm a fellow heir in the hope that is ours in Christ. He says, elders, I'm with you in this. Okay. I am with you. This is your charge in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight or watching over them. So the calling of elders is to be shepherds. That's the imagery that Peter says belongs to us. But the flock that we shepherd is not ours. Those in our charge belong to God himself and um, those of you in leadership, I hope you sense the sacred gravitas of those words. We shepherd God's own flock. The writer of Hebrews brings the same weighty emphasis when he says in verse 17, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Shepherd the flock of God. This is what elders are charged to do. And this imagery, whenever the Bible talks about leadership of God's people, this is a favorite image, both in the Old Testament and the New. And there's kind of a foundational passage in the Old Testament and another in the New about this imagery. I'd just like to read those so we grasp what lies behind what Peter is saying when he says, shepherd the flock. The Old Testament passage comes from Ezekiel 34. And it reads like this. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them into their own land. And I'll feed them in the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I'll bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I'll destroy. I'll feed them in justice. So if you're a sheep right now, you're going, yes, okay? That's the kind of shepherding that I want. And it's a rich imagery. It's, it's, it's imagery of sacrifice. Um, it's image of care. Search for the sheep. Seek them out. Rescue them. Feed them in good pasture. Make them lie down in that good pasture and rest. Bring back the strayed. Bind up the injured. Strengthen the weak. See, this is what's lying behind Peter's imagery when he says, elders, shepherd those people. It's this is what he's talking about. Now, the second uh, central shepherding text, the one from the New Testament, 
is from the teaching of Jesus himself in John 10. Listen to how he says it. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Twice there he says it. I lay down my life for the sheep in order to protect them from the wolf, he says. He says shepherds know their sheep. Shepherds care about their sheep. They lay down their lives for them. This is, brothers in leadership, elders of our church, this is, the, this is Jesus speak for love. He says, it, he says it elsewhere. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is telling elders, love your church. Love these people. I ran across a reflection on leadership from the life of Nelson Mandela that fits what Peter, I think, is saying here beautifully. Um, it happened at his funeral, at Mandela's funeral, by Ms. Joyce Banda, the president then of Malawi. And she shared the most profound lesson she learned from Nelson Mandela about leadership. She says, I learned that leadership is about falling in love with the people and the people falling in love with you. Okay. That's what Peter means when he says, shepherd the flock. The backdrop is the love of the father for his sheep. The backdrop is the love of the son as he lays down his life for the sheep. So brothers, we're being called to love, to love the people who sit in this room with us this morning. To shepherd God's own flock is nothing less than to sacrificially love those in this room. You know, when Jesus restored Peter, when the resurrected Jesus restored Peter after his denials in John 21, he takes the language of love and the language of shepherding and he tangles them all up together. L listen to how Jesus does it. So they had finished breakfast. The resurrected Christ says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so the language of shepherding is the language of love, not only for those you care for, but for the one that shepherds us. This is how we love God and his people. We shepherd his sheep. And in this little passage, Peter has three concerns that he's going to address that are to shape the way shepherds care for God's people. Okay? In verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight or watching over them, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So let's look at those three things one by one. First, not under compulsion, but willingly. So 
Peter's warning leaders here against love of self, a concern with me and mine such that when I have to care for the flock, it's an interruption for what I really want to do. There's no gladness about it. Paul uses similar language when he talks about the kind of generosity God loves and the kind of generosity God doesn't love. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We could say God loves a cheerful elder who gladly cares for the sheep. He doesn't delight in mere dutiful givers or in merely dutiful shepherds. Peter here is calling us away from have to towards get to, away from the care of others being a bother or an interruption towards it being an honor. He's calling us away from grumbling towards gladness, and he's calling us to serve willingly. And pride is one of the things that robs us of that kind of willingness, willing care for sheep. It can make us think that we're above this work. And um, there's a pastor, his name is Thabiti Anyabwili, and he puts it this way. He says, the apostle understands that shepherds should smell like sheep. The sheep's wool should be lint on our clothes. Our boots should be caked with their mud and their mess. Our skin ought to bear teeth marks and the weather-beaten look of exposure to wind, sun, and rain in the fields. We belong among the people to such an extent then they can be called on to honestly testify that our lives as messengers commend the message. We should both be so frequently among them that we smell like them, that we smell like their real lives, sometimes fragrant but more often sweaty and musty, offensive, begrimed from battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The more gifted we think ourselves to be, the more closely we should live among them. There's an insidious idea abroad that suggests that the more gifted the pastor, the less time he has to be with the sheep. It implies that being with the people is a hindrance. And brother, nothing could be further from the truth. God calls us to shepherd willingly, willingly be amongst the people. Um, And so from time to time, what I find most helpful in training my heart to be willing to serve is that I do something that's not my responsibility. It's not in my job description, something that I'm inclined to think might be beneath my job description. And most of you... Remember, I've talked about this before, and if you've been in our offices, you know that um, by the providence of God, my office sits opposite the office kitchen. And um, people, our office staff are pretty good about cleaning up after themselves. They have these little lapses. And so on Wednesday, I notice that there's some dirty dishes in the sink, and there's a whole pile of silverware in a cup from the Summit Church, of all things. You know, shaming J.D. Greer right there in the office, leaving dishes out. So I see him on Wednesday, and this is what I think. I should write a note and put it up there that says, if you use it, clean it. Right? Right? Moms and dads? That's, that's how it works, <laughs> parenting these staff in the office. So I come back in on Friday. I've been in and out of the office a bunch, and I hadn't really paid much attention to the kitchen area. I come back in on Friday, and the dishes are still there. And I think, I have got to write that note. And I hear this little voice that says, no, I think you probably should do the dishes. And so I, I did the dishes. I haven't written the note that's still on my to-do list. This week, I'll probably write that note. But uh, 
Brothers, training your hearts to serve willingly by doing things you deem beneath you is good for your soul. Um, It's good for you, and they're not beneath you. They are not. Jesus tells this really interesting story in Luke 17. It, It shapes me and troubles me at the same time. This is what he says. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to that servant when he's coming from the field, come at once, recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And what is most interesting to me about that story is that Jesus tells it to the apostles, future leaders of the church. And he says, Peter does in our passage, this is how God would have it. This is the will of God for shepherds. That they would shepherd willingly, not under compulsion. This is where the pleasure of God lies upon our lives most happily. So there's about a 100-year-old book uh, that's a compilation of some lectures that a guy named Charles Jefferson gave. It's called The Minister as Shepherd. If you're going to be a pastor someday, I recommend it highly to you. It's one of my favorite books about um, pastoring. Um, he, he writes this. He says, uh, the pastor can be tempted to make himself the center of the church. He's like a medieval baron exacting illicit tribute from the people. A Puritan preacher once declared that a covetous person lives as if the world were made altogether for him and not he for the world. He says, men sometimes come out of the seminary with no conception of Christian servantship, no idea that the church is to be first always, no notion that the church does not exist for the pastor, but that the pastor exists for the church. The pastor exists for the church. So, my, my brothers who shepherd with me, we are to shepherd willingly and not under compulsion, out of love, not out of pride. Peter has a second concern in that same verse that he presses upon us. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We are to shepherd, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter's, he pitted love against pride. Now he's pitting it against, against greed. It can tempt us all. Uh, recently, a, an interview between Inside Edition and a famous preacher went viral. Um, and so as I was preparing to teach it, I went and watched it. Um, and essentially, this, this uh, reporter from Inside Edition runs up to the preacher as he's getting into his chauffeur-driven Cadillac um, on his way to his private jet, of which he has three of them, and she wants to know why he won't fly commercial. This man's net worth is about $760 million. He lives in a $6 million mansion that the church has provided for him. Um, and this interview uh, it alternated between creeping me out and terrifying me. Okay? Because Satan stalks us all like this, right? He wants us to think we're worth it. Um, but 
we are about to pay off the mortgage here at the church and we've got to do something with that money. So we are definitely not going to provide the pastor with a $6 million mansion or a private jet, I can guarantee you. However, how about a pair of sneakers? You heard about preachers and sneakers, the Twitter feed? So they're tracking the shoe wear of kind of celebrity famous pastors and that their pastor is wearing a $6,000 pair of kicks. Yeah, there's two things that you need to know. There's two things you need to know about him. One, they were gifted to him. Or two things you know about this whole idea. His is those were gifted to him. And so what are you going to do? You, you know, if somebody gives you, don't do this to your pastors, right? Don't give them a $6,000 pair of sneakers. Um, he's between a rock and a hard place. The other thing you know about my kicks, okay, I do buy them from a French boutique. That one over on Capitol, Target. That's where I get my kicks. Uh, $35. That's where, where my kicks uh, came from this morning. But listen again to the warning to this kind of lavish lifestyle that comes from Thabiti, who I quoted earlier. He says, these days, uh, it's important too to remember as I read this, that in the, in the New Testament, pastor and elder are interchangeable words. Okay? They just, they, they go back and forth. So he says, these days, pastoral ministry has become more glamorous, fabulous, and fashionable than ever. We hear nowadays of pastors driving expensive cars or being chauffeured, owning private jets and living in opulent mansions. Once only the prosperity preachers or the bona fide hucksters touted such lies, but now your neighborhood orthodox super pastor does the same. It's all so pretty and perfumed with the world's best of everything. He says, but brothers, we are not professional models or entertainers hawking the world's airbrushed version of the good life from the lofty heights and flashing lights of public adulation. Brothers, we are shepherds down in the fields of life, and we should stink, he says. You know, God the Father has these terrifying words to say to shepherds who feed themselves at the expense of their sheep. Listen to Ezekiel 34 again. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Therefore, he says, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, my sheep I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Strong words. And it's so sneaky. I don't, I, I'm sure if I, if I interviewed these pastors who live large, that they would assure me that they're not 
that they're not greedy or materialistic. It's so sneaky. Tim, Cull- Tim Keller, who pastors in New York, says, some years ago I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. He says, my wife Kathy told me, I'll bet the week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. He says she was right. He said they, they packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but he says nobody thinks they're greedy. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. And then he says, greed hides itself from the victim. The money, God's modus operandi, includes blindness to your own heart. And so, those who shepherd with me, it's important that we ask ourselves, do we do what we do for me or for these? And honestly, serving secretly can be good training for our hearts in these matters where no one knows and no one sees. So church, pray for us in these matters that we would serve the church in willing love, not for selfish gain, because we are being stalked by a culture who says this is a virtue, not a vice. Pray for us. Peter has one last concern. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering, not lording it over them, but being examples. And he's reflecting the teaching of Jesus. You may hear the echo of Jesus in his words. In Mark 10, Jesus calls his disciples to him. He says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Charles Jefferson in that 100-year-old book really puts his finger on the pulse of misshaped shepherding authority when he says that the shepherd idea, if rightly used, is illuminating, but if abused, it's false and dangerous. It can be construed in such a way as to imply that laymen are weak and silly creatures while clergymen are wonderful beings endowed with supernatural powers enjoying unique and exclusive favors from heaven. He goes on to say that Jesus never used sheep in a derogatory way and that shepherds and sheep is just a metaphor. We're the same before Christ. We're sinners all in need of grace found only at the cross of Jesus. There's no superiority. There's no above or beneath in any way, shape, or form. He says, it's possible, however, for ministers to so use the shepherd metaphor as to exalt themselves at the expense of the laity and to set up pretensions which are expressly ruled out by the good shepherd. So as Peter has done with us, he recognizes he's a fellow elder and a fellow sufferer in Christ. So we too must remember that we are not above, but beside our brothers and sisters here. So they did this fascinating study about um, 2012, about seven years ago. Uh, There's a researcher, his name's Paul Piff, and he had subjects play Monopoly, okay? A two-person game of Monopoly, but power was skewed on the Monopoly board. 
One player was given this wad of cash and two die. The other Monopoly player was given half the cash and one die. So the game is skewed. The players know it. Um, But within minutes, the subjects with more cash and dice, the high status players, begin acting noticeably different. They hogged the space at the table. They made less eye contact. They took more liberties, such as moving the low-status players' game pieces for them. They also made more noise when they moved their own pieces. Now, everyone, they say that everyone knew that the game was rigged, but within a few minutes, the roles crystallized, and the high-status players started pushing people around and acting like they had real power and status. My brothers and sisters, we are not playing a board game. We are shepherding God's own people, the very people of God whom he loves. And we must do it from alongside, not from above. By example, not domineering. That's the example of Jesus, who before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then he said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Just as I have done for you. And it's interesting, you know who was in that upper room with him, right? The apostles, the future leaders of the church. And so in mercy, Peter closes this little exhortation to elders with a promise. And it's really beautiful. It says in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he says at Christ's return, Jesus himself, the chief shepherd, will reward us for this kind of shepherding. Peter's assuring us. It's going to be worth it, he says. Now, whenever you talk about rewards, people getting rewarded in heaven, different kinds of rewards, different levels of rewards, theologians go into a debating frenzy and they start debating this whole thing because there's a school of thought that says that in order to protect us from falling into this kind of thinking where you're saved by grace but you're rewarded by works and then in heaven you're always feeling bad because everybody else got better rewards so you're feeling bad for eternity they're saying look what what those scriptures mean about crowns and rewards really is that there's only one great reward and that's God And so um, all those crowns and rewards mentioned, they're just pointing to the one reward that's for all Christians, all faithful Christians, God. Um, Now, if they are right, and God is the great reward that waits for us, we should all agree nobody's going to be disappointed by that, right? Nobody is going to be disappointed. But there is another school of thought that says that the grace of God is not threatened by the idea of differing rewards in eternity. And I'm inclined towards thinking like that. Um, 
I mean, good company. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards. He's one of our great theologians. He, he espouses that. He's really hard to follow. He's pretty dense, not mentally, but in terms of his thinking. He's a really profound thinker. So I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Listen closely to what Jonathan Edwards says about rewards. I hope it will encourage you. He says, Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of cold water to a disciple in the name of a disciple shall in no wise lose reward. This could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he did but few. So he's saying, I believe that there are going to be different rewards in heaven, and it's not going to be a problem. This is why. He says, it will be no dampening to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others, and there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven, but perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. And there's more, but that's enough Jonathan Edwards for this morning. So, I'm inclined to agree with those that think particular rewards don't threaten grace in heaven any more than they threaten it in this life. And we all know that as we live this life, there are things we do that cause God to be pleased with us in, way, in, in ways, and there are things we choose that cause him to be disappointed or sad over us. We can please or displease God, and such it is. But if rewards are simply expressions of the Father's pleasure upon our lives, what a beautiful incentive that Peter is laying before us as leaders. He, he's saying... If you shepherd not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, you know, not domineering but setting an example, the chief shepherd's pleasure awaits upon you as a crown waits for the victor. So either way, whatever he has in mind with this reward, Peter is telling us it is worth it, shepherds, it is worth it to shepherd this way. Now, what I'd like to do now is close our time together a little bit differently. I'd like to pray for the elders of our church who are in our service. Most of them were in the first service, but there's a handful of us that are in this service. And so, brothers, those of you who are here, if you would like to come down front and love for your spouse to come with you, uh, we would like to pray for you. Uh, so if you'll make your way on down here. I know I've got at least three, four of them are here this morning. If you brothers would come down here, that would be fantastic. You can just stand right down here. And if, if you're in their small group or you're close to this couple or you're, you're, you've attached yourself in prayer to one of these elders and you want to pray, why don't you come on down and stand next to them just, just to let them know that you stand with them in their task of shepherding the church and as an expression of your willingness to pray for them. So if you'll come down for that. And then, um, church, I'd like for you to stand. It's a symbol of standing with us in prayer and I can't tell you how much we need your prayers. Uh, we are being stalked by the evil one, and your prayers matter to us so that we can bear the love of God to you. So join me in prayer for these who serve us and lead us. Lord, you have been kind to us. I know these men, and I trust them, and I submit to their leadership in my life.
without question. Um, thank you for giving us men who model beautifully what we just saw this morning, this kind of humble shepherding leadership. But Lord, I also know that we are great and terrible sinners and we need your help. We lean upon you for this grace to carry out this impossible task of shepherding the church. Help us, Lord. Have mercy upon us. And upon these, my brothers and their brides who stand here, I pray your richest mercy and grace, your protection and your care. Lord, we ask this for your name's sake and for the sake of your people here. Um, that we might be the beautiful bride as we ought to be in the midst of the world, sharing the good news of Jesus to all. And this we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. I want to remind you before we're dismissed, you can remain standing and Daniel will um, bless us out of here in just a minute. But tonight we'll meet here at six to pray for really the heart and soul of our church, for... Um, for our study, our practices of study and service and this worship service we do together. These core values, we're gonna, we're gonna be praying here tonight at six. I hope you come join us and pray, uh, pray for the church. Daniel. Let's be dismissed today with this uh, benediction. Now may the Lord remember and bless us for he blesses all those who fear the Lord, both small